Welcome back to the Soapbox podcast, the podcast that gives you an insight into the people that do insight best. I'm Richard Brown, a research director at Box Clever, and as ever, I'm joined by Tilly Lewis. She's been a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, but now she's our marketing manager. So for our seventh episode, we are very pleased to welcome Ray Pointer, who has spent over 40 years in the market research and marketing industry. Ray has presented and chaired at various events, is a lecturer and an author, just to name a few. So Ray, you are well known to the market research industry. You are currently a chief research officer at Platform One, and you are the founder and chair at New MR. We're so happy that you're with us today. Uh, and thank you for taking the time out of your, your busy schedule to join us. Pleasure, pleasure. So Ray, 40 years. The first question has to be, can you tell us about the very start of your career and, and how you've ended up where you are now, please? Yeah, absolutely. So like too many people in the research industry, I fell into research. We might even come back to what are the negative impacts of that if we get time uh, for the industry. But I fell into it. I did a degree in computer science, 75, 78. And when I graduated, I got a job writing statistical software for the first man in the UK who was importing Apple II microcomputers. Those things used to have 48K of memory and we saved information onto cassettes, audio cassettes. And his client was in the research industry. So I was writing statistical software for the research industry. And very quickly, I started giving suggestions about how it should be used, because I didn't like the way they were using my software. Uh, The following year, 79, I launched my first company, which was a data processing software house, still using these Apple II microcomputers, but more and more being involved in the research as well as the software. And for the last probably 35 years, it's been almost entirely doing the research and only a little bit of software. It kind of formed quite organically then from... Yes, absolutely. Oh, nice. And you got out of Apple at the right time, Ray, because it never went anywhere anyway, (laughs) did it? (laughs) Uh, Well, we were amongst the first users in the country of the Apple Lisa, which didn't go anywhere. We were amongst the first users of the Apple Newton, which didn't go anywhere. And we were actually use early users of uh, the Apple Mac too, which did go quite a long way. <laughs> you said, Ray, about how you fell into research and, and quite rightly uh, also said that a lot of people fall into research. But what we haven't heard is what you, you mentioned there, that it might have a negative impact on the industry. So many people kind of accidentally getting themselves involved. Can you tell us a bit more about that, please? Yeah. So why is the research industry so white. Mm. It's not actually because there are many people who would actively discourage people from other ethnicities, other backgrounds. Why is it so ableist? Again, it's not because there's anything going on. It's because there's no active recruitment. How do you fall into research? Somebody you know happens to mention you. They are likely to have the same abilities, the same background, the same orientation as you do. So we preserve a white, ableist, broadly straight culture because people aren't choosing to go into research. We need to be pulling people into research. And some people are doing great work in that area. 
But that's what you get. If you have an industry where people fall into it, it becomes very samey. We look into mirrors a lot of the time, don't we? And uh, I I agree with you. And I think there's people don't realise that there are actually lots of different industries that would complement the market research industry. But absolutely, yeah, I think it's just trying to expand on the pool of regular candidates that tend to go for. And if we wanted to sell it, for want of a better expression, that the insight world, the, re- the research world, to any youngsters out there, how would you do it, Ray? What would you tell them? First of all, if you are curious about why people do stuff, then this is for you. And so it's a career which you can move in lots of different directions. There's lots of things you can do. But fundamentally, you want to be in this industry because you're curious about what people do. So if you don't want to do the same thing day after day after day, you don't just want to build buildings. You don't just want to be an engineer on a microchip somewhere. If you want a completely different brief, something which in many ways is like responsibility a barrister has or responsibility a journalist has where you keep being thrown new questions it's a fantastic place to be and it's not that hard to do well in this industry frankly yeah if you are really sharp you are wanting to go somewhere this is an industry where you can do that yeah i think that's a really interesting point of view ray i mean it's massively damaged my self-esteem you're saying that that's fine uh, but no I do I, I do agree I think that you can shine in research and that there's different avenues for different skill sets and you don't have to be brilliant at everything to do well um, in research and I also think that if you were trying to sell it to youngsters today I'd be mentioning that this is something that you can learn how to do and find your 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 niche and you could potentially have your own business you know, you don't have to be locked into working for a big corporation or even a small business. You could do this for yourself if you have your brain switched on maybe at the outset and you start to think like that. Mm. I mean, that isn't what I did, but I wish someone had said that to me <laughs> yes. many years ago. And I could, could have started to, because I was reflecting on this yesterday when I was, I was talking to a friend about work. And I was thinking I spent the first 10, 15 years learning how to do qual and then learning about quant and analytics but at no point really was I learning about the business side but I should have been Mm. yes Ray if if you didn't fall into the the research industry what what do you think you might have been interested in in doing well I came very close um, to being a professional politician I was for 28 years a county councillor and borough councillor I did run for parliament and I I came third or as in the UK we described that last I prefer third (laughs) and when I was at university I stood for the sabbatical president of the Manchester area NUS and I missed by two votes and if I had got elected into that role then quite likely I'd have probably ended up in politics um, in some way, shape or form, be that as a lobbyist, be that as, mm. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> a criminal protester or as an MP in some way, shape or form. So it could have gone in a very different direction. I was always fascinated by, at university, that small percentage of what seemed to me at the time, and, and still now, incredibly mature and incredibly able young people that were able to like run the societies or stand for a position of of genuine responsibility because I would not have been 
capable. No, no, I'm not saying you wouldn't. But no, uh, no, you, would... you didn't <laughs> know me then, but I think that you know enough about me now to <laughs> believe that I'm saying I couldn't have done it. But I wonder, Ray, what were you like as a youngster? Like, how did you end up being in that, that kind of guy? <laughs> I was insufferable. My children tell a tale about me about where some of this comes from. Evidently, when I was about four, uh, my grandmother, who was a bit snooty, was visiting and said, if you don't stop doing that, I won't love you. And I oh only looked her in the face and said, my mum will. <laughs> that is a great comeback. If you've got a, a, a solid piece at the back, then you are going to take risks. You've got to be able to take knocks. So I am a sort of realistic optimist. You know, I think I will win that vote. I think I will win that election. I think I will win that project. And then when I don't, it doesn't bother me that much. And that's that's kind of lucky, that, that combination. But of course, in terms of how do you run a society? So I was the student union treasurer when I was at university. Uh, and I, I ran a couple of societies. But you, you learn by doing, which is the same as the research industry. You've got to learn by doing. And you mentioned as part of your, your makeup and, you know, when you were young, being optimistic. Do you think you were born like that? Or did you, did you learn to be an optimist? Yeah, definitely born that way. There were lots and lots of bits and pieces which could have pushed in another direction. So I think that is an inherent characteristic. Um, so I always bear that in mind when I, I give advice to other people. I don't do it too much about sort of emotional stuff because they won't be starting from the same place. Mm. It's much easier for me to talk to somebody else who's an optimist about, well, do it and see what happens. But if you get somebody who expects it to go badly and is distraught when it does, well, taking risks isn't such a good idea. Mm. Mm. Because you do hear a lot, or I feel like I hear a lot, maybe I'm tuned into it, about, you know, not necessarily take a risk, but be positive, try. If it doesn't go well, it, it doesn't matter. But the, <laughs> the, the, the part of me that absolutely isn't an optimist will often say, yeah, but it, maybe it does matter if it doesn't go well. <laughs> not everything is without consequence, you know. But I think I learned to be more, much more optimistic than I was naturally or that I was brought up to be. So if you're not like Ray from birth, it's, it's not the end. You can learn. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I think as well as I've got older, I've realised that fewer and fewer things matter. Yeah, I think, yeah, as, as you get older, I think also a lot, a lot less things bother you as much or maybe your priorities change but Ray I want to ask you what is your worst habit we've heard a lot of positivity I want to know some of the I want to get to know the the worst habits of Ray <laughs> okay so the the worst one and it, it's proved to be a benefit in research so my gut instinct is I think I am very typical I, I feel like I'm really close to the medium. So if I can be incredibly insensitive. Um, so for years, I, I at one stage, I owned a company. We had 30 or 40 employees. And sometimes I'd go in at the weekend and I'd move the desks around and change who was sitting with who because I thought everybody likes a change. <laughs> that would have really stressed me out, Ray. Um, and so... That, that undoubtedly, this instinct of thinking that I am super typical mm. 
Why that turned around to be a benefit? Once I realized it, I realized that I actually have to do proper analysis. When I look at why somebody buys something, why they don't buy something, why they've reacted to a particular message, I don't go to my gut. <laughs> well, I think that's that's the key to the success of our industry, I think, isn't it? That every stakeholder you speak to typically will have assumed at some point that everyone kind of does what, what they do and have, feel how they feel. Mm -hmm. And then it, whatever they done has done hasn't gone as well as they hoped. And they think, well, actually, maybe we need to speak to some people and, and work it out. And lo and behold, actually, lots of different people do, do things really differently to you and your, your yep. friends or your family. And that becomes the key to it all, doesn't it? So, you know, it's, it's good to hear that you're not moving desks around anymore. Uh, <laughs> I'm probably causing an equal amount of stress sometimes. But uh, I'm working on it. I'm aware of it and it's a work, it's work in progress. In your career, Ray, what would you say has been your best moment in research? Probably when you, you get a good understanding. So quite a nice one was when I realised how important it was to understand how your clients made money. So I was doing a project for Coca-Cola Japan oh, 30 years ago, maybe, and Coke was sold in cans in vending machines, was one of the big ways they, they sold it. And they sold it in 220 milliliter and 330 milliliter. So 330 is basically the size of the cans we would have in the UK normally. So there it was in different vending machines, sometimes next to each other, these vending machines. It was 100 yen in both machines. So we did some testing, including using conjoint analysis, and I went back very happily to the head of insights in Coca-Cola Japan in Tokyo and said, great news, there is no additional utility for the 330 can over the 220 can. People are enjoying the 220 just as much. They're just as happy to pay 100 yen for the 220 as the 330. So you could scale back the number of 330 cans you're selling and make more money. And he said, Ray, how does Coca-Cola make money in Japan? I said, you sell Coke. He said, which conference did you join me at last week? And I said, the bottlers conference. And that's when the penny dropped. The cans are actually sold by the bottlers because it's from bottles. And they buy concentrate from Coca-Cola. So if there had been a shift in Japan from 330 cans to 220, the bottlers would have made more money and Coca-Cola would have made less money. So he then said, you might want to go and have a look and see if there are any other better recommendations <laughs> yeah. in the data. And it just really understood, okay, I have got to understand how my clients make money. Otherwise, I can't possibly find the right advice. With that, Ray, what's been your, um, your worst moment in research? In one sense, it's, it's almost the same. So I, I did a project for a client, and this time I'm, I'm not going to name them. So it was a big group, and they, they got retail outlets, and they got some manufacturing. And a, a consultancy from the US was coming in and going through one department at a time, analyzing what they were doing. And they were using a type of chart called a comb chart, where you put um, a vertical lines on these charts, you look at how well the brand is doing, how well should it be doing, and how important is each one 
of these vertical lines. And they said, we want you to do this research for us, Ray. And I'd just started a new company at that time. And so I thought, this is fantastic. It was five countries, a thousand interviews per country. Um, so really, really big project. And we get into the debrief on the first of the five countries. And I suddenly realized that whilst I have delivered what the insights manager had specified to the letter, what we had was of no value to any of the marketers in the room. It didn't answer. They asked this question and this question, and it didn't. And the worst element was not living through that debrief. It was knowing I've got four more countries to come. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we actually commissioned a little bit of extra call research. So we had something to talk about in the other four countries at our cost. And that, I think, is the last time I ever did exactly what my client wanted without checking what they needed. Mm. It's good advice, isn't it, as well? Yes, it is. But it was just so exciting because it was such a big project. And it was and it was very... Yeah, another of my weaknesses, I... I am seduced by methodology. If there's a good statistical methodology or a, a good bit of behavioral science or something like that, I can really get enthusiastic about that. And then you just need to rein back and say, and is it going to be useful? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Are we doing this because we like it? Or are we doing it because someone might need this? It might, it might give us something. I suppose you don't always know, do you, until you've done it? You don't always know, but I, I need to be aware that one of these things where I may not be super typical is I love the beauty of maths and stats and I will do it just for the fun of doing it. And again, it turns out that's not true of absolutely everybody. No, but I think it's whether it's something um, you know complicated and, and advanced analytics or whether it's a simple technique you've used in, in qual or just even a question in the questionnaire, you can be in danger, I think, of getting that that data, those findings. Now we have it, we have to present it. Whereas I've definitely, because I look at any quant through sort of qualies, and you might see a graph on a page and just go, yeah, but who who cares? Like, what is this showing us anything? Do we need this? Well, well they've asked the question. Yeah. yeah, but do they need the answer? Because we've already got 100 yeah. slides. Like, we can lose some of this, I'm sure. Um, yeah. and it's even harder to do. And Box Clever perhaps knows this better than anybody that when you have used a lovely advanced analytical technique, you might feel like there might be a very niche audience that would like this. We'll do a separate session with them, but the main audience don't need that level, even though it's been fun and we've got something yeah. from it. Let's curate what we have. I think it comes back to knowing your audience, doesn't it? Knowing yeah. what they what they want, how they want the information presented. Mm. Get, you know, asking the question: What do your stakeholders like? How do they? want the debrief to be delivered is is key questions and I think a lot of people are, are too afraid to ask the question as well yeah knowing your audience is a key factor absolutely and that's why on bigger projects so often you'll obviously you'll speak to the insight people and maybe a couple of the key stakeholders but then you'll do separate calls with other you know important people because I've definitely been on calls where they've said and then we'll get this and, and we'll get that from it and that'll be and you're like well no, you won't actually. That's not a part. That's not part of the project as it stands. It, do you want it to be? So yeah, I think you. It's always a great relationship, isn't it? When you're working with an insight person and you trust that they will have done like their their due diligence on their side, so that mm. when they come to you, they've funneled and filtered and explained and managed expectations, so that that brief that's in front of you, you're like, this is this is what they need, and we can deliver against that, so that you don't end up in that situation where 
you've got a lovely deck or a video or whatever it is and it's not very useful Ray we were actually talking about this on the way over I know that you're a keen runner um and I actually read that you you've run every day for the past four years is that is that correct absolutely yes we were fascinated about this. Can, so can you just tell us a little bit about your running and how, how it started? I mean, running really breaks into two categories and they're, they're a bit in conflict with each other potentially. I've run a little bit for years. I ran the Robin Hood Half Marathon in 1981, which is the first year it started. And I've certainly I've run that half marathon every year, but three in all those years since. And I run the occasional one, but I played rugby until I was 60. So I was a much, much bigger. I was uh, 25 kilos heavier um, than I am these days. So my, my running was not particularly exciting. I was four and a half hours for the marathon. I was, what, about 16 hours for 100 kilometers, these sort of speeds. And then I got more and more into running as I stopped playing rugby and lost weight and got faster and started winning age stuff. So I actually run quite competitively in my age. I got the gold medal this year for the British uh, Championships in the marathon. We ran it in the, the Isle of Man and I came first in the 65 to 69 age group, which was a real buzz. So all of that is a lot of fun. And in the summer, I ran the spine race. I came 26th, but that was against all ages. And that's a 268-mile race, carrying, navigating the route and carrying a rucksack. So all of that is kind of serious running. Running every day can't be done seriously. You have to um, do a lot of those runs, just three kilometres, at a really steady pace. And I do that as part of getting control of my day. So in about 10 days time, I'm flying off to Japan, flying out for Heathrow. So I will be getting up at three o'clock in the morning, run three to four, five kilometers slowly so that I don't miss my streak. They're called running streaks, these things. And for me, that means I take control. So you get those days when you're being pushed around, you've got to deliver this, you've got to help that person there. I know that every day there is something that I have scheduled for me. And for me, that's a really positive thing. God, I've got so many questions. Yeah, um, <laughs> I was, was going to say before you started talking, Ray, that, that myself as now starting to be an older runner, but I ran the um, the Robin Hood, the Nottingham Half, um, and you ran it the year that I was born. So I'm not necessarily an, an older, older runner. But what I have found, um, and I think at any age, I, I was worried about your recovery time. You know, is it, if you speak to a personal trainer, they're going to say, don't run every day, even three kilometers. They're going to say, give your body a break, let it heal, let it rest, and you'll run better the, the next day. But but you're, you're not doing that. No, and I, I don't run flat out um so even when i run a good time so i do half marathons these days in about 134 which is which is good for any age and it's particularly good for my age that's really good that's really good it's really good right yeah i won't pull a muscle because i am not running two minutes faster than that which i probably could do but then i wouldn't be comfortable the next day mm. um and you get into running 
So when I started running every day, there were a lot of days when it was three kilometers, five kilometers. But that builds up. And if I contrast my father, my father was a manual worker and he worked seven hours, eight hours a day, actually. And it was physical and he didn't get recovery days from a physical job. So when he was uh, younger, he used to work on the railways and he was an uncoupler. So we had big marshalling yards near where I live. And his job was the um, the shunting engine would put them in and he ran along the side of the, the trucks, leaned in with a wooden stick and uncoupled them. And then somebody else who was standing at the back end would pull on the brake um, and it would all separate. So it was dangerous and it was physical. So why for a leisure activity do we need a recovery when workers don't have to? The people digging the holes in the roads for us, the people doing all of those manual jobs don't have that sort of luxury. I do, I do completely agree with you though, because I am a reasonably keen runner, although I'm not in your class, it has to be, has to be said. But it is a, a, a really good way to have what today is called me time. Yes. To clear your head and to get the heart. It doesn't have to be um, super strenuous, as you say, just a little trot is enough to uh, get you back on track some days, I, I think. Well, we, we have uh, at my club about twice a year, Couch to 5K. And there's 24 people have just started last Monday. Their second night is going to be tonight. And they will turn up and they're often men and women who are quite overweight. They've not exercised for a while. And they come in big, floppy uh, tops and they come in baggy jogging bottoms and they go for a run. And about 12 to 16 weeks in, they start coming in lycra. Now, they're still overweight, but they've started to own their body. They've started mm. to say, you know what? This is what I do. I am a runner and I'm going to dress like a runner. Um, and it's fantastic to see. I did once catch sight of my reflection once on a run that I wasn't prepared for. And that that took some recovery time. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Um, but I think with any with any really serious runner, like you are, Ray, and particularly people that go beyond that marathon distance into the ultra runs, the question is always, what is it that you're running from, Ray? Come on. <laughs> oh, it's definitely not from. So I am toying. There's a, if you, after this, Google Montane Spine Race. They're racing at the moment. They're doing the Pennine Way. It's snowing and it's icy. Um, a friend of mine, by the time we finish doing this recording, will be running over Cross Fell. It's minus seven. The wind chill is minus 15. The wind is 25 Oof. miles an hour. Um, and I'm looking at that thinking, maybe I should do that one too. Because I am curious about what can't I do. Mm. I've done the summer spine race. I've done a 50 mile through snow and ice race. But could I do a 108 mile race? Could I do a 268 mm. mile race? I don't know. And so I'm really curious to find out where that boundary is. Because if we get really big instead of just running... Most discovery is at the liminal. It's the edge of what's possible and what's not possible. When somebody does or they don't buy your product, when you're right on the margin of getting a successful idea, that's where all the excitement is. And so this, the liminal case, what is the limit of what I can currently do? Mm. And can I make that, and will it get worse as I get older or can I keep expanding it? Because I'm, at the moment, I'm still setting PBs 
um, I set a new PB for 50 kilometres in December. You are an inspiration, Ray. I think it's, it's incredible. Do you have a favourite place to, to run or have you had it somewhere that's really taken, you know, pardon the pun, but taking your breath away? So occasionally I've had the chance to run in the mountains in Japan. And that has been fantastic because you just, uh, first of all, you surprise people. Um, mm-hmm. I was in Korea a few weeks ago and they were really surprised. I was in the middle of nowhere and I saw quite a few cyclists and they were just looking at me and uh, there's this older Western guy running up the mountain. So I, I love running in the mountains. Um, mm-hmm. One of the reasons over and above the beauty, the nature, the view is that every time it gets steep, you walk up the hill. So you run the small hills, you run the flats, you run the downhills, but you walk some, and that that breaks up the pattern. There is a, a real monotony. And I've got a race in August. The first time I'm going to try a 24 hour race around a 400 meter track in Oxford. The one where Bannister actually set the four minute mile. I'm going to be running around that for 24 hours. That's going to be tedious. Mm. Whereas it's going to be beyond tedious. This sounds like a Guantanamo Bay type activity. <laughs> but, like they're going to break you. But um, when you're, you know, you're going through the mountains, it is so varied. I don't know if you ever walk even in in the mountains. When you're close to, if you go to a tourist place, and you're close to where the buses stop and the the cafes are, nobody says very much to each other. But you get a certain distance up that track um, out of the sort of the tourists. And you're now into the walkers or the hikers or the runners. And everybody's happy to see you. They're all greeting. You make an assessment about who should be stepping out of the way for the other one as they're moving through. And it's just a very different culture once you get slightly out of the beaten track. It's like the unwritten rule, isn't it, almost? Yeah, yeah well, I found it on a, on a walk up one of the Yorkshire Three Peaks that there was a certain elevation where you would duty bound culturally to say hello how are you yeah and then once you were at a level that was closer to you know the ground you didn't have to do that <laughs> in fact it was weird to speak. yeah i mean you'd be looked at a bit strange when you're too yeah. when you're too far down yeah i you know have a couple of dogs and when i'm out early on a morning there's when you're out kind of before seven it's an unwritten rule that you say morning to anyone that else yeah. that's out at that hour it's yeah the kind of thing absolutely <laughs> and, and as researchers we are more likely to notice that the, these patterns happen. Other people fit into the patterns. Mm. But one of the, the sort of the training things is, is having that introspection to say, what is the rule of, and how does that rule operate? And how do new people get to know what the rule is? Mm. <laughs> it's so interesting. Yeah, it is. I think you, you're right, right. You, you, maybe you get into research because you're tuned into those kinds of the social norms and breaking of social norms and the impact of that. And maybe, or maybe you pick it up as your you're part of it but I've always found it very very interesting when there are cultural rules inverted commas that we all attach ourselves to um and how you pick them up yeah definitely even like uh, when we we're on this this walk and everybody was in really brightly colored like hiking gear and my friend said to me I think we should be in brighter clothes we're in gray and black it's not what you wear <laughs> and I was like it doesn't matter Paul you know but he was like it does matter it clearly matters <laughs> I don't know if you know Rachel Law. She's written some some great books. Oh yes, on she was on a uh, webinar. Yeah, previous mm. webinars. And yeah. so, so I, I had her for a series of webinars, and we were showing how semiotics could be done. As in, I was letting Rachel show 
house. <laughs> but I was discussing that if I get the time, what I would love to do is the semiotics of the clothing that people wear running and hiking. Because as you've just said, there is there are some really strong patterns and characteristics. I did read a, a, an article about why are running shoes so horrible? Like they break all of the rules attached to any other shoe, really. You know, like what's the wildest kind of shape? I know there's there's technicalities to them, but in terms of colours and patterns, they are bananas, aren't they? Like, um, the trouble is I can't remember the answer. It just made me feel better about having bought really wild shoes before and then pairing it up with all black. <laughs> well, actually, if you go beyond the shoes, the, the guys have not gone into it as much yet, but some of the running bottoms that the women are wearing are fantastic and they are super loud and there's some really really um fashionable in the sense of that industry they're not going to be fashionable in other industries but mm. people talk about their their sweaty betties and all of these sorts of things um and there is a real desire yet yeah, to stand out quite clearly if you do work on that with uh, rachel ray please let us know because i'd be interested to see the findings of that Actually, I saw a woman at the weekend that had her leggings were covered in donuts. They looked incredible. Well, I think what we what we know about Ray is, given what his his poo pooing of recovery time, he's probably out there in just a pair of slacks he's cut off on an old shirt. You don't need you don't need lycra. You don't need probably out there in brogues up a Japanese mountain in a pair of slip ons. No problem. And I, Ray has kept more than once trying to bring this podcast back to insight and research, but I'm I'm not going to let him. Right. Uh, so welcome to the podcast. Uh, that's uh, uh, all about box clever and running because i know um a guy that's in his 70s now but it, it turned out that he was kind of a natural athlete but he didn't know that until he was about 30 when a friend said come out for a run and he went oh i've never done that before i'll, I'll, I'll give it a go and he had what can only be described as an epiphany you know this is what i'm supposed to do and then carried on running from there and was doing sub three hour london marathons and and all of that. And I suppose what I want you to tell me, Ray, is that you're a natural athlete and that I shouldn't, I and I couldn't have achieved the things you've achieved because you just had this innate ability and it isn't my laziness that's held <laughs> me back. I certainly wouldn't go laziness. I've got a couple of, of good characteristics for running and lots and lots of bad ones. So my 100 metre time when I was at school was about 17 seconds. It's now about 18 seconds, which is amazingly slow i run park runs in about 22 and a half minutes so that's four minutes 30 a kilometer i run 10 kilometers at four minutes 30 a kilometer i run half marathons at four minutes 30 a kilometer so i'm not fast but i've got the ability to keep grinding that out so i think genetically i should probably have been something like a lumberjack on the russian steps I'm built to, to be able to do work, but I'm not I'm not wired fast. So you know that game you probably played at school where slaps, where you had to slap the other person's head? <laughs> I was always the person being slapped because I was never fast enough to pull my hands away. I'm just not wired fast. So there are different characteristics for different people. But Ray could handle being slapped repeatedly for 24 hours. So he did win I mean, the, won the long better, game. I would be better at that. <laughs> and... I mentioned playing rugby. I was the hooker. So there is a very specific mentality of being on the front row in rugby. The first scrum, you know if the other side are better than you. If they're better than you, you are going to hurt all afternoon. 
the only thing you can do is not let it show. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, and that's kind of, um, again, that that's sort of stoic uh, mentality. So I, I've got that. But most most of what I've achieved in terms of running is still is not getting injured. That's like massively important. And that's a combination mm. of genetics and sensible training. And then developing the training and finding events which suit me. So I don't do track running. Uh, it's, it's not what I can do. On the other hand, if we're looking for somebody to run 50, 100, 200 miles, I'm going to be really competitive. What about aside from some from running? Um, I know it's not re- it's not niche, obviously, but do you have any other kind of interests, Ray? Uh, be that niche or geeky? So I'm I'm beginning to to write more again, um, and I'm going to start writing about running. I went I went to a workshop on writing because I'm writing a book on how to find the story in the data, and I will still write that and. I realised that actually people were much more interested in hearing some of the running stories. So I'm going to write more around those. What else? Oh, the normal things like spending time with family. I like Mm -hmm. learning things. So over the last couple of years, I've qualified as a day skipper for sailing yachts. I've got my VHF maritime license for using the radio i've started learning british sign language because one of our runners is profoundly deaf so i'm going to be able to communicate with him better i've been studying japanese for years and i'll be practicing it when i go out there i got my a first aid certificate and a mountain leaders running certificate recently so that i can do things there so i like learning and it almost doesn't matter what i learn that's quite a comprehensive list, Ray. I'm I'm impressed that you managed to find time to to do all of these things. And I know that you've written various books. I mean, it, well, within the industry, it must be an amazing feeling to actually get a a book published. Yeah, it's lovely. What would you give uh, to anyone uh, like advice to someone that's starting out on that journey of writing a book? There's a oh she's joanna penn i think if you google her so when i wrote those those first books they were by wiley they were commissioned they went through that sort of route nearly everything in the future is going to be self-publish it -hmm. is changing immensely first of all the publishers have got almost no people so they're not going to edit your book really well they're not going to make lots of really good suggestions for marketing it and so on So you're going to be doing all of that work anyway, but there are freelancers who you can get to edit your book. There are freelancers you can get to do the designs. There are some incredible tools out there now. So go down the the self-publish and look at the, the different sorts of routes. And there's one piece of advice that all authors give, which is you start by writing. Yeah. Um, don't start by thinking about it. Don't start by looking at how am I going to get it published. Write some blogs, write some articles, write some white papers and don't try to get it perfect. There's a couple of reasons for that or even maybe three. The first is it takes too long, mm-hmm. which means it often doesn't ha- then happen. The second is if you get something perfect and then you look at it again in six months, it won't be perfect. Because you've changed. 
Mm -hmm. So perfect isn't really a thing. And then the third one is the more it's right for you, there is a real risk, and maybe worse in my case, that it's going to be less good for more people. The closer you get to perfect for you, the less good it is for most people. So it's a trade-off. If you want stuff that other people are going to find valuable to read, you're writing for them. You're not writing for you. If, on the other hand, you want to, and I know, I know people who do this, they write novels and they never show them to anybody else. They just enjoy the process and they write them for them. That's fine. But if you want to be published, then you have to write for your audience. And when um, the magazine people and people like that contact me, one of my first sort of questions is, how many words do you want? 800 words, 1,000, 1,600 words? Because I will write to that very specifically. Just getting in the habit of writing short things, medium-sized things, long things. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to run out of time, Telly, and I've got a question. I know that we've got mm. definitely got one. This is the, the penultimate question. Now, we've asked this question, I think, probably of everybody, but I don't think we've ever expected a genuine answer. But I feel like Ray could answer this one. And that is, is there a secret to being happy, Ray? And if there is, I mean, what is it? Please tell us. It's different for different people. The first thing is my way of being happy will not be the same as yours, will not be the same as Tilly's and so on. So you've, you've got to do that. There's a book called Obliquity, which talks about things which you can't do by trying to do them. And being happy is one of them. You can't try to be happy. What you can do is stop doing stuff that doesn't make you happy and keep experimenting with stuff. So don't repeat stuff. If you get into things that are making you less happy, you have to change something. Now, I was in my teens, 15, 16, really, really quite emotional. A lot of people used to make me upset. I'd burst into tears. And I had an epiphany. I was talking to uh, one of the lads at my college, and he was saying, I actually almost never swear, but I'm going to do it now. Don't give a fuck about what they say. Um, <laughs> And now pretty much the only people that can upset me or offend me are a handful of close friends of my family. So if you can put in barriers or boundaries against the stuff that knocks you back and do things that make you happy. So when you've done them, you think, huh, that was good. And sometimes that's going to be type two happy. Type one happy is eating a cheesecake. You love it at the time. Type two happy is uh, when you ran that Robin Hood marathon, you probably weren't laughing half marathon, laughing all the way round. But the next day, you probably look back at that and you go, you know what? That was good. That's what we call type two happiness. And I think type two happiness is probably more likely to make you happy going forward than type one. Ray, if you could say thank you or sorry to someone, who would it be and what would you say? There's a guy called Alan Frost, who was the person indirectly I wrote that software for. He was the end client. He wasn't the person who set up the company supplying it. And so much of what I've learned about business and marketing and people was because of Alan. And because he was pre-social media... There is very little trace of him around. So I think that that is, you know, that's quite sad. But he was such an inspirational guy. So, yeah, he would certainly be one. And definitely my mum. Good, strong answer there, Ray. Yeah. Thank you, Ray. 
And thank you so much for, for taking time out for your busy schedule from all of the whole list of things that you do, Ray. I mean, I'm totally blown away. Really am. I'm impressed. Yeah, no pleasure. So there you have it. It's not just ultra runs in the Japanese mountains. It's not just publishing books or skippering yachts. There's so much more to, to insight than that. So we've got to say a massive thank you to Ray for being with us um, and for being such a legend. I, I feel like I've met my hero. A hero I didn't know I had, but I also I hate him a little bit. He's, he's, he's made me feel so bad. He's done everything. He's amazing. That's, I know. I'm. My life just looks so petty now. <laughs> Honestly, what Ray manages to squeeze into a day... And I'm tired from going to the gym for half an hour. Yeah, imagine saying to yourself, well, I'm flying to Japan from Heathrow. I better get up at three so I can do so a I can run. So squeeze my running. I mean, yeah, what, what an absolute machine. We hope you've enjoyed uh, our seventh episode now. On our next episode, we're joined by the wonderful Dr. Annie Pettit, who is somewhat of a celebrity in the industry, a market and social research strategist, teacher and writer. As always, we'd love to hear from you. So please do get in touch with us via our Twitter account at WeBoxClever. And you can also email us, TillyLewis at BoxCleverConsulting.com. So if there's a question about market research, about Ultra running, running. <laughs> what, what else about learning Japanese, <laughs> just, just get in touch. We'll put you in touch with Ray. <laughs> Thanks for listening. See you soon.